If you haven't prayed for me yet, go ahead and look at this chart, then you should start praying. Uh, this may be the most foolish thing I've ever tried to do as a teacher, explain Daniel's 70 weeks in 20 minutes or less. Um, so I'm going to pray for a miracle. hope you pray for one too. And one of those th- miracles is that you stay awake. All right? So if you need to stand up and stretch and move toward the center, uh, we're going to pray. Um, and then we're going to jump right in. Okay? Lord in heaven, it is good to study your word. And I uh, have been so challenged looking at the book of Daniel and just seeing how this was a man who was set apart. Father, who continually set his face to you, who looked to you in prayer, who walked in obedience despite, Father, the pressure and the temptations all around him. Father, would we be Daniel today? Would we follow in his footsteps? And, um, and Father, represent you to a dark world, Lord. May we feel the, the current of resistance against us as we walk by faith and uh, hold true to your word. And may we find hope and the promises of your, your truth this morning, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. For y'all that are come on in, coming in, if you would, just sit in the middle, and then you'll be able to see this whiteboard behind me. And, um, you know, I, I just uh, got through talking to a friend who recently went to the Texas Motor Speedway and went to go see a NASCAR race. And I just, uh, you know, I looked at him kind of dumbfounded. You may be one of those NASCAR guys, but I don't understand it. I mean, I have an office that looks out at LBJ, and other than the fact that the cars are cooler, I, I don't understand. Cars are just racing by, right, and going at high speeds, which sounds kind of cool, but after I've seen about one or two laps, I think I'd be done. And you fight all that traffic, and you go out there. I'm just not a NASCAR guy. And um, as I was sitting there, and this guy was just almost like an apologist. He, he was an evangelist explaining NASCAR with all this passion. I'm like, no, no, you got to get it, man, if you could just get it. And, uh, and I'm, bro, you're lost on me. You're lost on me. I just don't know if I'm ever going to get NASCAR. And, uh, and no, I don't want any invitations. You know, I don't want one of you coming up here and going, no, you got to go someday, Blake. I'm not a NASCAR guy. Well, I was sitting here thinking about the book of Daniel and thinking about prophecy. And I have been so challenged by this book, by Daniel's example, who he is. I've been fascinated by how God uses the book of Daniel. Really, it's almost like a key that unlocks so much of your scripture. From your Old Testament, way back to the promise of Abraham, uh, the Abrahamic covenant where God promised Abraham an unconditional covenant, three things, land, seed, and blessing, and how we see through scripture how God uh, fulfills that promise, literally fulfills that promise, and how there's this expectation for the Jews that God is going to fulfill all that he promised. To them, But then you have Daniel and where the people now are in Babylon and they're wondering, God, are you going to be faithful to your promise? Don't you remember what you told Abraham? Don't you remember what you told David, how there'd be one who would reign on the throne of David? And then you read Daniel and, and you see how Daniel ties in with Revelation and how the Bible is all one book. So I'm going to share some things with you this morning, and some of it may kind of go right over your head. Some of it may um, challenge you. I hope it encourages you. We study prophecy, gang, because prophecy gives us hope. You think this is a world that needs hope today? Absolutely. Hope. You know, if you've dealt with sickness, disease, injustice, heartache, loss... Famine, war, hunger, 
loneliness, sin. You want hope. We study prophecy because it inspires us. It gives us hope. We know how it's going to end. And we see that God has been faithful to all that He has promised. All throughout Scripture. That's why I love the Old Testament. It is a record of God's faithfulness year after year after year, even when it seems impossible that He could come through. But when you read the Old Testament and you see how God fulfills those promises, and then you see how Christ is the fulfillment of those promises, and you see that even a greater hope awaits for us, in the end, when Christ returns, it should inspire you. And when we see how faithful He has been over the past, and we think about what could come for the future, we've got to look at His track record and say, hey, I may not see how all these pieces are going to come together. I'm kind of like the Israelites in the wilderness sometimes. Lord, I don't know how you're going to put all this together. Or I'm like Joseph. Lord, I know what you told me, but I'm in a prison. I don't know how you're going to put all this together. But in the end, through His providential hand, because of His miraculous power, He does. And so if you're a little lost looking at the book of Daniel right now, and you read it and you're kind of like dazed and confused, because we've talked about beasts and statues and weeks that are really years and what we're going to talk about today, and it starts to get a little confusing, I may sound a little bit like that NASCAR guy right now. And you're like, yeah, Blake, I, I just don't get it. Prophecy's not for me. Don't make that mistake. Don't make that mistake. Because prophecy is for you. It's a third of your Old Testament. Your Old Testament is broken up in three parts. You have historical books. You have 17 historical books. You have five poetical books. And then you have 17 prophetical books. And God wants you to understand. He wants you to understand His prophetic plan. And He wants you to understand where you fit. And how He's going to fulfill it. And so you can see He's a faithful God. So when we jump in now to Daniel 9, which honestly is one of the more challenging chapters out there when you look at the 70 weeks, and I will tell you, there are different interpretations of this, as there are many passages of Scripture. But I'm going to give you the interpretation that Watermark holds to. And it's based largely on an expectation that God will literally fulfill His promises to Israel. And see, if you spiritualize... The promises to Israel. If you say, oh, well, God promised to Israel is ultimately really fulfilled in the church, you are going to land in an altogether different place. And we don't believe that. We believe that there is a future for Israel. See Romans 9 through 11. It could not be more clear right there. See God's promises to Israel and how he's literally fulfilled them. And so I'm telling you right here, this is one interpretation. There are many. But this is one which we feel is most faithful to the Scriptures. And is more, most in line as to how the Old Testament believer would have understood the promises. You with me? Alright, well Daniel chapter 9. That just ate up about six minutes. Now I've got to really hurry. Verses 1 and 2 really provide the setting here. Now, Daniel 9, if you remember from that chart I gave you, and I hope you still have it, Daniel 9 follows chronologically chapter 5. If you've been with us and been paying attention, you understand what's happened there. Belshazzar's feast, you remember the handwriting on the wall? 
And Daniel comes to him and says, hey, I'll tell you what's going to happen. The handwriting's on the wall and you're out. Right? Belshazzar's gone when he reads the interpretation. And Darius the Mede, Medo-Persia, a new ruler is coming on the scene. And that's how Daniel 5 ends, and Daniel 9 picks up right there. Again, Daniel's not written in chronological order, so you go, one, two, three, hey, I get it. Daniel's written, and it's broken up by category. Okay, he's focused on the Gentiles and the message to the Gentiles, any non-Jew, and the the hero stories over there. And now he's focused on, hey, what about the Jewish people? What about God's promises to Israel? So now we're looking at Daniel 9, but chronologically, historically, it's following Belshazzar's feast and how there's a transfer of power. Okay, so Babylon right now, they're no longer in control. There's a new empire in town. There's a new kid on the block. And his name is Darius the Mede, and he's now leading Medo-Persia. So the setting in Daniel 9 verses, is found in verses 1 and 2. And it says, in the first year of Darius, the son of a difficult man to pronounce, Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, those are the Babylonians. So when you see Chaldeans, those are Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years... According to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, how did he get that? Because Daniel understood the promise of Jeremiah. Okay, follow me. Hang with me. Don't get discouraged. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 12, it reads, Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. The land of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. What God is saying to Jeremiah is, your people, my people, you're going to go into captivity. The Babylonians are going to come, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and take them into captivity. But that captivity is going to last for 70 years. And after those 70 years, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to punish the Babylonians for their wickedness. Okay, that time is nearly up. Daniel understands that. He sees the, the, the uh, political wind shifting. He comes before the Lord in prayer, and now he is saying, Lord, I know what you have told Jeremiah. The 70 years are coming to a close. So I set my face before you. Look at what we see in verses 3 through 19. We see this great prayer. And you can camp out on this prayer and what this prayer teaches us, what it models for us, what it exemplifies for several hours. But what, you, what you'll notice here is how he prepares for prayer in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel was intentional. He was purposeful. And notice he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from our commandments and our rules. He says, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, to all the people of the land. Verse 7, do you, O Lord, belonging righteousness, but is to us shame. And he's, he confesses the, his sin and the sin of those who preceded him. Now, why is he doing that? Because Daniel understood 
the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy. Turn to Leviticus chapter 26 real quickly. Leviticus 26 is broken up into three parts. God tells the people of Israel, long before they go into captivity, He says, hey listen, if you obey, verse 3 and 4, if you obey, you will prosper. I will bless you more so than all the other nations of the earth. Verse 14 and following, but if you disobey, trouble's coming. I will use another nation to discipline you. Because I am not going to bless those who chose not to live in accordance to my will. God, though, in his omniscience, says to them, but there will be a time where you're not going to obey. I I know you're going to turn your back on me. And when you do that, look at verse 40. Let me tell you what you do. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If in their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Daniel understands this. Leviticus 20, 26, Daniel, uh, Deuteronomy 28 through 30 is very clear. There's if and then then. If you live in accordance with me, you'll prosper. If you disobey, you will be punished. I'm going to discipline you because I love you and I'm a good parent and I'm going to discipline you and I'm not going to let you run wild in rebellion in my home and say that you represent me. And so Daniel understands that this is the time, the time of discipline of these seven years is coming to a close under the Babylonians. And knowing what Leviticus 26 says in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, he comes before God, just as it was prescribed right there, and says, Lord, forgive us. Forgive the sins of my fathers. Forgive us as a people if we've rebelled against you. And you see in this prayer, it says more than once in verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us. What is that? Leviticus 26, De- Deuteronomy 28 through 30. Verse 13, as is written, a law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. We have not obeyed. What is that? De- Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 through 30. He gets it. And so he prays for forgiveness on behalf of the people. You could spend so much time looking at at this prayer, and you would see that Daniel's prayer, it's intentional. You'd see it's theocentric. It's focused on God. He's humble. He's informed by Scripture in his prayers. He's contrite. He's honest. Makes so many observations. And so I, one of the couple of discussion questions I'll throw up there for you, just make note of, and I would encourage you to spend time as your group, is to look at this prayer and ask yourself, what does this prayer teach us about God? What does it teach us about God? And, and then secondly, what lessons can we learn from Daniel's example on how we are to pray? There's much here for us to see in a model of Daniel's prayer. In his heart, his attitude. And notice, Daniel's not a guy who just prays in a time of trouble. Prayer is thematic throughout this book. And Daniel's dependence upon God. It's the part of how he lived. It wasn't just every now and then, right? A rote prayer over a meal. 
prayer for Daniel was essential. And we have a great prayer, a model right here for us. So he prays and God answers him. God answers him in verses uh, 29 and following. He threw the angel Gabriel. And what I'm going to look at in the remainder of our time here is I'm going to look at God's answer. And we're going to go really fast. But hopefully, as you can see up here on this little board, that um, there is a lot to it. And I'm incorporating a happy, one of the principles of, <clears throat> of understanding Scripture is you, uh, you have to compare and contrast Scripture with Scripture. So Daniel says a lot here, but we understand more because of what other passages of Scripture teach. So what you see in verses 20 through 27 is you see what's known as Daniel's 70 weeks. Okay? Now verse 24 is presented as the prophecy as a whole. There are going to be six blessings that are going to occur across this whole thing. Okay? And that's why I have this 24 written down here. That's verse 24. And those six blessings, okay, when you look at it, three relate to sin. These are two slides next. Guys, you want to look real quickly? Just go two slides ahead. Three relate to sin. And he's going to say, hey, what's going to happen here is I'm going to deal with sin and finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity. And three are going to deal with righteousness. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. And God, what he's saying is, there is a hope, there is a future for the Jewish people, Daniel. But, but you've got to understand all of the prophetic calendar. So 24 speaks as a prophecy as a whole. Verse 25 speaks to the first 69 sevens, if you will. So that's why I have verse 25 right here. It fills this part. Verse 26 is going to speak to this part. What's going to happen in between in verse 27 to the end times. Okay? Let me explain all that. But before I do that, there's something you've got to keep in mind when you're reading uh, this passage. Just as we count by tens, we think in 10, 20, 30, and we teach our kids how to count by tens first. And just as we think by decades, the Jewish people thought by sevens. Okay? So, things to keep in mind here is, is that the Jews counted by sevens. And the word seven is going to refer to years. Okay? The prophecy refers to 70 groups of seven periods. A period of 490 years. And the Jewish year consisted of 360 days. Not 365, 360 days. Now, all this is going fast, but you'll see it here in just a second. And there is a principle in prophecy known as double reference, or double fulfillment, if you will. That two events widely separated as to the time of the fulfillment may be brought together in the scope of one prophecy. There's like a near, and then there's a future fulfillment. So having said all that, hopefully I haven't lost you too badly and you're still with me, I want you to look at verse 25 with me. It begins with a decree that's going to be made. There are three decrees for the people to return from captivity back to Jerusalem. I believe, and many scholars believe, that the decree which Daniel is speaking of is the decree of Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem, which was told to Nehemiah in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, which was in 444 B.C., right here. Rebuild. This starts these 70 weeks. 
Alright? Stay with me. It ends, if you do the math, it ends with the triumphal entry when Jesus rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem, right here. Palm Sunday, which we just celebrated. If you start the decree here and you follow the Jewish calendar, lo and behold, when you look at it, Daniel's prophecy is so specific that in Luke, which I have up here, Luke chapter 19, which is the triumphal entry, verse 42, what does Jesus say? And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over Jerusalem. And look what he says. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. It's as if Jesus is saying, you should know what this day represents. I am the Messiah. I'm here. Scripture's pointed toward me. And this day is significant. He's ridden in, presenting himself as the Messiah. But we know that the Jews rejected him. So this, for 69 weeks, is told to us in verse 25. Verse 26 tells us that the anointed one, who is Christ, will be cut off. He will be crucified. We know that Jerusalem and the newly rebuilt temple were destroyed by the quote-unquote people of the ruler who will come, which is a double fulfillment. By the Romans in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And guess what's going to happen later? Is the Antichrist is going to come in the tribulation. And we'll see it's a double fulfillment. And the Jewish people are going to experience ongoing desolations. Verse 27 speaks to then end times, right here, which was known as the tribulation. And verse 27 tells us that the future Antichrist of the revived Roman Empire makes a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. After three and a half years, he breaks the treaty and he commits what's known as, and what Jesus refers to, as the abomination of desolation. And he's going to do that. What's going to happen is, and we know this, the rapture is not spoken of right here in Daniel, right? Because, and the church age isn't even spoken of right here in Daniel. The church, you and me, we're a mystery to the Jewish mindset right now. Look at Ephesians 2 when you have time. Okay? But what happens is, and remember, Daniel is focused on what about the Jewish people? What happens is, the church, okay, we are going to be raptured. We're gone. What ends up happening, though, is the nation of Israel is going to have enemies all around it, like it does now, and the Antichrist will come to power and will promise peace and will make a covenant with Israel, which they will agree with. But after three and a half years, according to Scripture, they will break, he will break the covenant with Israel. And this is known as, and he will go into the temple, and we don't know exactly what's going to happen. He perhaps is going to create a, a shrine of himself and a man for people to worship him. But after three and a half years, it will be known as the abomination of desolation. That is when all hell breaks loose. That will happen for about three and a half years where the Jewish people will be persecuted like they've never been persecuted before. And then you get to the end of Revelation and we know of the second coming of Christ where he returns on a horse. And his garments and the horse are dipped in blood. And he comes back with his church. And tattooed on him is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's where he says, we're done. 
And he fulfills what he promised to Abraham and to David in what then is the millennial reign of a thousand years, which you don't see on that board. King, this is a lot I'm throwing out at you. I'm not expecting you're going to have this chart memorized in your head. Okay? But what I hope you see is, is that the scriptures are all one book. That this book is inspired by God. That God is faithful to his promises. That there is a future for Israel. That we as a people, as a church, have a hope. That we should live as courageously as Daniel lived because we understand what God has done for us through Christ. We understand that one day he will return. And all the sin and all the suffering and all the pain and all of that is going to be dealt with. All the injustice of the world, it's going to be dealt with. You got a problem with evil? So do I. So does God. But he's got a solution for it. And 2 Peter 3 tells us that he's waiting. During this time, he's waiting to use you and me to go tell others so they would trust Christ. Because when he returns... It's done. It's over. At death, there are no other second chances. You either know Him or you don't. And so, because of God's love, He waits to give us opportunity to know Him. But in the end, know this. When you read the Dallas Morning News, and you look in the paper, and you see tragedy after tragedy, and injustice and injustice, know that He notices And know that he will rightly deal with evil. He will solve the problem of evil. He will solve it. Gang, when you look at prophecy, you know, I I put on here a couple more discussion questions. You don't have to write them all down. But my hope is is that you're not the guy who's apathetic or disinterested. (laughs) I hope that you're not lost and confused. I hope you're excited and hopeful. You may not understand it all. It takes a lot of study. I get it. But when you read Scripture slowly and you piece it together and you do the work, it fits. It makes sense and it inspires us. It gives you hope and you can be Daniel when the winds of resistance are against you. Why was he so faithful? Because he believed the promises of God. In the midst of all of that uh, torment and persecution. He stood true. Because he knows the truth. And so today at work and within your families, within your neighborhood, and within your friends, you stand against the resistance of temptation and persecution. Because you know the truth. You know, we've, we've said this so many times. But I, I pray and I hope that you have a good answer as to why understanding Scripture is essential. Or understanding prophecy is essential in understanding Scripture. It will turn your black and white TV, if you will, into full color HD TV. Take the time to learn it. Learn it. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, Daniel 9 is uh, a challenging little passage. And um, it's filled, loaded with truth. And Lord, charts can be intimidating. And looking at this, uh, I know... 
creates some confusion, but I hope it inspires hope that you're a God who's faithful to your promises, always faithful to your promises, that there are men like Daniel, Lord, who believe you, who trust you, who walk with you, and whom you exalt because of their faith in you. I pray, Father, that you would give us that faith, that you give us that courage, and that we would be a people, Lord, who would stand on the promises of God. That we would not just come to Bible study and go through the motions, Lord. That is going to do us no good when trouble comes. That's not going to inspire hope when we experience suffering and pain in this world. But we would be a people who could rightly divide the word of truth. And you tell us to pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I pray that. I pray, Father, uh, and fully believe that you, your son, will come again. And until that day, may we be found faithful. And may this church, I pray, as Paul describes the church in Timothy, may we be a pillar of truth. Speaking up for what is true and standing for what's right. In Christ's name, amen.